morning. Um, I wanted to just kind of like give you guys a little update on things in, in my life and just uh, what's been going on. And then we have a really good video message for you this morning. I've, I've had a couple weeks off and I've been, um, well, not off. I, I took a bunch of our staff to a couple conferences in the mainland. We're a part of two really big like uh, movements, I guess, church planting. One's a denomination. It's called Foursquare. And so we went to a, a conference in Escondido. Um, about four of our pastors got ordained um, up, up there. It was Pastor Rob, Pastor Trevor, Pastor Jody, Pastor Tammy. Basically, um, they've been, um, yeah, praise God for them. Thank, thanks for those guys. They've been licensed pastors, and they've been doing incredible things around our church, and, and ordination is basically just the highest form of, of public recognition for service, and to me, it's just like they're getting honored because they're battle-hardened warriors for Jesus and all that they did, so we got to get together at that conference, and we were just getting fed, and we got to pray for each other, and there was tears, and it was just powerful, really, really good, um, and then we went over up to, to Anaheim. And we're part of something called the ARC, which is the Association of Related Churches. And they're not a denomination. There's no bylaws and rules and all of that stuff. It's just a bunch of people on mission to plant a life-giving church in every community in the world. And we're just trying to do big things for Jesus. And so we got equipped over there as well. I brought up about, I don't know, there's about 13 of our staff on that one. Like, we just went big. And, of course, we learned a lot from God. But we also, uh, at Anchor Church, we, we work hard, but we play hard. So I took all the staff to Disneyland. And we also went to medieval times. You guys ever heard of that one? Like you eat the big old turkey leg and there's like knights jousting and all craziness. And me and, me and Trevor were just heckling every night and it was just, it was awesome. But anyway, um, I got to see my two older kids. My son is in Bible college. He's thriving. He actually went on that Japan mission team. He flew up and met him from LA. My daughter just got signed to a big modeling agency. She's killing it. She's, she's on the same label as Cardi B. Like, she's, like, she's doing good stuff. So anyway, she's, they flew her out here for a day to model. She's going to Australia, just all kind of cool stuff. But anyway, that's my life. And um, I went on this trip, just to let you guys know where I'm at. I went on this trip, and I just told God, I just, I want everything that you have for me. I'm willing to do anything. I'm just ready for some new seasons and for you to speak in my life. So I just went fully expecting. And, and God, when you tell that to God, that's a dangerous prayer because he takes you up, up on that offer. And he just, he's been breaking me in a good way, not a bad way, but just, breaking me down and getting to my heart and getting to like a place I need to be. Because he, he told me this, he goes, son, I need to break you before I can rebuild you. So you need to go ahead and surrender to this and you need to let this happen. And I just went and I've been a mess in worship for like two weeks. Like every time I'm just ugly crying and everything. I don't even care because God is just doing such good things. And so anyway, I'm in a really good season and um, I'm not preaching today because I'm still kind of processing a little bit. And I, I'm thankful that you guys are gracious with me and letting me kind of have this time to just Kind of, and if you don't know what I'm talking about in the season I've been, you haven't been in church, shame on you, you haven't heard, <laughs> ask somebody, but anyways, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm walking stuff out, so I get to introduce a message that I'm bringing back from um, one of the conferences that I went to, and it's, it's by the new president of our Foursquare denomination, and it's on peace and anxiety, and I'm like, this is a word in season for me, and this will speak to my church, and so you're going to be blessed by that today, but I did, can I just say really quickly, thank you guys for all, the, all of you that have reached out and sent texts and prayers and emails and just, just hugs, like I'm just, I'm blessed by this church family that I get to be a part of, that we do life together, that we're really here for one another, and even those of you guys that couldn't make it today and you're watching online, you know who you are, I'm thankful for you, I love you. Amazing. This is a great church, isn't it? I'm just thankful for you guys. Anyway, you're going to be blessed today. You're going to watch this message. It's going to speak to you about peace, and we're all going to be better for it. So 
take a look at this. Love you guys. Well, good evening. I have never been to Escondido, so uh, this is a privilege to, to be with you and um, to begin to put faces and names uh, together because in my heart, I've been praying for you. Um, and when you pray for people, we obviously your heart goes towards people. And so um, one of the things that we're doing right now is we're, we're transitioning the church that we have pastored for the last, we were in our 17th year now. And um, we've been, my wife and I have been pastoring for 28 years, senior pastoring, and we do not really know how to do life without wrapping our heart around the flock. Um, we don't know how to, to do life without being embedded in a community. And so it feels really unknown for us to pull up roots and to begin to decrease. As a matter of fact, the, the pastor who's following me at Beaverton is also scheduled to speak uh, tomorrow. So Brad Williams, so he's here tonight. So, um, so he gets to, I told him, when you follow a pastor, it's kind of like looking in their underwear drawer. It's just really, uh, really intimate. And uh, it's, you get to see all the strengths and the weaknesses up close. So, but, uh, but the, uh, the, the season we're in, we had, we shared our, we had a staff retreat we just came from and uh, Brad was able to be at that retreat. And so it, I felt a little John the Baptist-y, like I must decrease and uh, he must increase. So he's yet to fully transition out of the church in Spokane and a couple of congregations affected, but we see God's sovereignty and hand in it and we're really thankful. But, but for us, We've tried to envision what does it mean next. And so I don't presume anything. I'm not assuming anything. But I hope you let us wrap our arms and hearts around you because we need a, we need a flock to, to be a part of. So this, this is our joy and this is our privilege to get to be on the conference gauntlet in the next six weeks hitting all the different conferences because it's a chance to get to some of you it's i've seen familiar faces um people i've played basketball with at life bible college high level college basketball and uh now it is not back in the day not when i did it was like so randy do you have tennis shoes yeah you're you're in come on and uh but I actually, I blew out my knee playing Pacific Lutheran, so I've got some Life Bible College money in this knee right here. But, uh, but I want to say thank you to Fernando for the privilege of um, being here, the gracious hospitality your team has shown. You guys are, um, you are who you present yourself to be. Um, you're not incongruent. What's outward is true of you inwardly, and it's really evident. So thank you for, for allowing us to be here. My regret is that I won't get to be here for the remainder of the conference after tonight. Um, I need to go back and do a funeral tomorrow for a longstanding a member of the church we pastored two churches ago. Um, so I'll have to take off, but I look forward to future times and to be together. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to the book of Philippians chapter 4. You're going to hear a lot of in-depth, real, high-level information and teaching. So I'm going to go... For the low-hanging fruit tonight to start us off. Uh, you, you got the heavy hitters coming up um, after the fact, but I love the theme, and I've been thinking about the theme uh, a lot the last couple of days and even have shifted my focus and my message um, to align more with the theme, but about five years ago, 
I had made an appointment with a research librarian at a local university in the Portland area, and I was doing a project and I needed some help. And so I made this appointment, it was the Monday after Easter. And I went and sat down with uh, this guy, and he was an older gentleman, a Vietnam vet, and he has this beautiful golden retriever with a service dog vest on it sitting at his feet. So as we were talking, I, you know, I inquired and, you know, just graciously about his dog and how does your dog help you? What does your dog do for you? And he said, well, I've got post-traumatic stress and I sometimes can get so um, amped up and kind of even black out and I, it's, I can go from zero to 60 really fast. And the dog can sense, the dog can just sense when I'm starting to get anxious. And so the dog will come over and lay by my feet. And he just senses I'm starting to get anxious. And if I'm starting to get even a little more worked up, the dog will sit up and just kind of look at me, just kind of get my attention. And if I'm really, really not doing well, the dog will like climb into my lap. I mean, the dog will just, so the dog can sense the level. So we're talking and a few minutes later, the dog comes over and lays by me. And, and pretty soon the dog sits up and starts looking at me right in the eyes. And, and I, this is no joke. About two minutes later, the dog climbs up into my lap. And the guy said, are you doing okay? And I said, apparently not. I, I, I never considered myself really, I'm kind of what you see is what you get. I'm just kind of this guy and not really high highs or low lows and kind of even keeled and, but what I realized is in ministry, even if it's nothing more than just the consistency of how we serve and how we give our lives and the privilege of doing so to be there for others and to be invited into very, um, very important and then also very traumatic parts of people's lives, we bear a lot. And it's not just those points of failure or real direct trauma that affects us so much, but it's the compounding effect of just ministry life that adds up. My, my wife said this before we knew we would be shifting into this role a while back. She said, if we ever leave the pastorate, before we do anything else, we should take a year off and just cry for a year. <laughs> like, like all those funerals you've done, all those traumatic moments and it's, it's like sorrow. There's all this compressed sorrow that can build up in our soul and our heart. And without even realizing it, it can lay there below the surface and be like this chronic, just this chronic level of stress and anxiousness that we live in and we're not even really aware of because it's become normative. But it begins to take its toll over time. And the next thing you know, there's a golden retriever climbing into your lap, letting you know that you're... A mess, but, but we've been, as pastors, committed to, to trying to live a really, it's the elusive quest to live a balanced life, but to live life more by priorities than just urgencies. We've tried to live our lives by priorities. We've tried to have rhythms we were very committed to in terms of our life and marriage, and um, we had made a commitment to be home for dinner five nights a week, all the child-rearing years of our life and um, coach my kids' teams. I said no to a lot of things over the years to prioritize that. But there wasn't a day that I didn't go home 
from work where I didn't feel like there were about 50 balls just falling to the ground. Mm-hmm. That, that if I knew that if I worked five, six, seven more hours, I'd still feel that way when I left. And I had to make decisions that this is a step of faith that we take every day to serve God, that we just got to trust that we're not God. Because when John the Baptist showed up on the scene, the first thing they started asking him, are you the Messiah? He's like, no, and you're not either. We, we don't have Messiah complexes. We're, are you this? Are you them? No, I'm not them either. I'm not Elijah. I, 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 God can't bless who I'm not. I, I know what I am. I'm a voice. I, I have this endowment, this capacity, this assignment, this calling, and I'm going to live within the context of who he's called me to be. But I want to read a scripture from Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, that is familiar to everybody in this room. But I want to make just a couple of thoughts from it. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, you, you know this section of Scripture, but verse 7 references the peace of God, which we can't even really adequately communicate what it is because it defies human explanation. It's not tethered to external circumstances. It's trans circumstantial. It's, it's resident in the life of God within us, and it's hard to really explain because it's, it's there when it shouldn't be there. When circumstances would demand that you would be a mess, you're not. You're not fragmenting. You're not pulling apart. You're, there's shalom. There's togetherness. There's wholeheartedness, the peace of God. It's God's peace. Imagine how much peace God has right now. God has a lot of peace The Bible says that there's no peace for the wicked. Satan has no peace. Satan leads with fear. God leads with peace. It's who he is. Jesus is the prince of peace. His kingdom will be established as a kingdom of peace that will know no end. And so one of the ways we merit what's going on or monitor what's going on in our hearts is, is there peace or not? Whose kingdom? is ruling and reigning in here. Where, where am I putting my trust? But that, that verse and the peace of God, which goes beyond human understanding, and then it finishes, and the God of peace. Two references to peace. Verse 6 that says, do not be anxious about anything. That verse, Kindle said, the Amazon uh, site that, that tracks every highlighted passage um, in any online literature in the Kindle library, they say that that is the most underlined verse in the entire Bible out of all their online tracking. Out of all the monitoring of highlighting and underlining on the online Bible, this is the runaway most underlined highlighted verse in all of the scriptures. The most highlighted verse in all of literature comes from a Harry Potter 
uh, novel. And it's interesting because it speaks to, I, I didn't write it down, but it speaks to a reference of a future that, that is in kind of approaching that they have no control over. So the most highlighted book in all of online um, literature in the, the Kindle library is a reference to the fact that there's this future that we can't control. And then the most highlighted verse in the scriptures on the online Bible is, and there's a peace from God that guards my heart and mind when anxiety wants to run amok and anxiety wants to take over. And so the condition of the day that we live in today is one of stress, it's fear, it's anxiety, it's worry, it's anger, it's instability, it's uncertainty. We, we, we know that, and I, I'm hesitant to, to, to overload us with a bunch of statistics, but just listen to a couple things, because this might be us tonight, but it's also the people who come and sit in our services. There's a man who wrote a book, a, a psychologist, and he said that the average American teenager today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient did in the 1950s. So in the 1950s, they would say, that's a crazy person. That's the level of anxiety that teenagers live with today. And they say the number one driver of anxiety in teenagers today is social media, online comparison. That comparing themselves to one another is the number one driver of unhappiness. That's from an article in the Harvard uh, Business Journal that there's this chronic comparison. Everybody online curating their best image and putting it out there, and somebody's looking at that and comparing their loser life. Pastors, we never have that problem, thankfully. Because <laughs> we never have to look at another pastor's Instagram feed where they're going, whoa, they killed it today in worship. We killed it. Everybody's killing it. They ki they're killing the announcements. They killed the announcements. <laughs> So they're killing it. And I'm like, we didn't kill it today. <laughs> this image of this packed out stadium sanctuary with lights. And you're like, we broke 12. Um, remember when Jesus said to Peter, when he was restoring him in John chapter 21, and he said, Peter, you're not going to fail me again. As a matter of fact, you're going to get old and you're going to, you're going to be a stalwart in the faith and to the point where somebody's going to take you by the arm and lead you to a place you don't want to go, speaking of the death that he would die, that he would be faithful to the end and he would lay down his life. In that moment of Jesus affirming his faith, restoring him back in his calling, what did Peter do? He looked over his shoulder and he looked at John and he went, well, what about him? Is he going to die too? Because if, if I'm going to die, I'd like him to die. The, it's not fair. I mean, if I'm going to die, it should be grisly. It should be bad. Um, and, and so what did Jesus, Jesus said? What is it to you if I let John live forever? Jesus has no grace for comparison. He didn't call it to coddle it. He didn't just, he just basically said, what? it's none of your business what I do with John. Peter, this is about you. When I start taking my eyes off of Jesus and I start looking at John and start measuring myself against John, I'm not going to be at peace. That's not going to be a place of comfort in, in, in my soul. And so the Harvard Business Review also said that 
60 to 90% of all medical, medical visits are stress-related. The U.S. Center for Disease Control say that about half the deaths that take place before age 65 are related to stressful lifestyles. Also, the Center for Disease Control noted recently, we've gone three years where the average life expectancy in the U.S. has declined. And that hasn't happened in more than half a century. And it's not because of heart disease, strokes, or cancer, which they call the big three. Actually, death related to those things are actually decreasing. They say that the causes of death that are soaring are related to drug abuse, opiate abuse, um, alcohol-related deaths, and suicide. And a couple of Princeton um, scholars, a sociologist, coined the phrase, these are the deaths of despair. That, that we have a declining lifespan um, uh, related not to physical issues, but issues of hopelessness, issues of despair, issues of despondency and high anxiety and they said, we are literally dying of hopelessness. That's how they're speaking to the generation that we're living in, that there's a lack of hope. And in Western society, rates of marriage and birth rates are declining in spite of all of our technological advancements and education. And, and we could go on and on with statistics that just underscore the fact that Jesus makes a promise in his word to us that we although this is normative nowadays, it doesn't have to be our portion. I'm not talking about the fact that there is very real issues of mental health, that there should be no um, stigmas associated with that. We, I've heard somebody once say, um, it's okay not to be okay. That you can raise your hand and get help, and we hope you will, and we hope you do. I'm not speaking to those kind of disorders and those kind of um, uh, clinical issues. I'm speaking to just the average person today that's living with this just chronic anxiety that lives just kind of below the surface there. And so when we look at all the statistics, they conclude that the United States is the undisputed champion of anxiety and worry. And the World Mental Health Survey stated that we're the most anxious people of 14 countries studied more significant levels of anxiety than the people in Nigeria, Lebanon, and the Ukraine. That's us. And it's ironic because we're living longer than any previous generation. We understand the world better. Our standard of living is higher. We've defeated most of the terrible childhood diseases of the past. We're the healthiest. We're the wealthiest. We are the longest living people in history. And we're increasingly afraid. One commentator said, this is the great paradox of our time. And so we come to a scripture and say it's normative to live stressed out, depressed, and anxious life. It's almost pandemic. But is that to be common of us? Because there's a promise that we're given in Philippians 4. And I want you to hear this, because I'm not making light. We, we read things, be anxious for nothing. The minute we hear that, we want to start qualifying we want to start making, you don't understand, you don't know my story, but, but if you, listen, you got to remember who's saying these words. This is the Apostle Paul. The other person who told us in the scripture, don't worry, was Jesus. So we're not going to top their stories. 
Um, the Apostle Paul, how would you like this at your ordination service? This is your calling. Go and put your hands on my servant, Saul, and tell him those things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's your commission, your ordination prayer. I know you're blind, you got knocked off your donkey, you're going to have your sight restored, and this is your life in front of you. You suffer. You're going to suffer a lot. That's, that's your high calling. So now you're going you're gonna to say to the guy sitting in the prison cell, facing imminent death, you, you don't have to be anxious for anything. No, no, no. The, the people outside usually write letters to the people inside and say, it's going to be, we just try to comfort you. No, the guy in prison is writing to us and saying, you need to, you need to know something. There's a promise. And the promise is this. That God will be so alive in you that who he is will be your experience that you can live in and you can walk in peace. Does he give us these promises to just frustrate us, to tease us? Or is it possible? I'm not minimizing anybody's story, anybody's experience, anybody's trauma or, or past. I, as I said, we, there's great compassion and help and a desire. I'm glad we're learning more and more about that and talking about it more and more. But I'm, I'm just talking about us on a journey that get to be counter to the culture that we live in. That God would say that in his arsenal, one of the weapons that he will use to protect you is peace. And the peace of God will protect you, will guard your heart, will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. God promises peace is our portion. That, that's a possibility. That's, that's a promise to be laid hold of. In our church, we've had the, the, the blessing, and I, I recognize not everybody gets this opportunity, so it's a great it was a great gift and very humbling to think that we would get to do it. But, but every seven years, we give our pastoral staff three months sabbatical, a paid sabbatical every, every seven years for three months. And whether they feel like they need it or not, it's part of the preventive just ministry care, and we budget towards that and plan for that and everything. So last summer, my wife and I was in the cycle for us, and we got to have our sabbatical last summer. And so we decided that we were going to do three things. We were going to have unshared time together. We were going to just be selfish with each other's time. It was just me and her. Um, and then our boys, obviously, involved in that. But we were going to have unhurried time as well. That means we were going to have lingering, open-ended devotions. We were going to just work on projects. And when we didn't want to work them on anymore, we wouldn't. Um, we wanted to sleep, we slept. We wanted to walk, we walked. We wanted to eat, we ate. We just decided to have unhurried time. We, it worked so well that we almost forgot some days what day it was, literally. <laughs> and we decided to go off the grid completely. And we put our phones in a safe, literally. I have a gun safe, don't tell anybody. Uh, um, I, I, I put our phones in my gun safe in the garage, and we got some burner phones so we could just do some old school texting with our boys. Um, the only one that had that phone number was my assistant and our executive pastor, and they knew and to not to call. And so I want to tell you, it is, it, 
it's a lot to detox not having your phone. And so our motto became this, let's just not know. So it's like, I wonder how long it's going to take to drive. Well, let's just not know. I wonder what time the movie, well, let's just not know. Was she in that one show? Well, let's just not know. You know, all that stuff that is just so, just, you just got to know, you know. It's worth interrupting dinner over. It's just like, well, I don't know. Let's check that. So that became our motto, let's just not know. And it was so freeing. Now, granted, this is extreme. We like stepped off the face of the earth for three months. We, we kind of went, we're all but borderline Amish. Uh, we, just, we, just, we just went off the grid. Um, and we started to re-enter and we got our phone, you know, and we turned it back on and, and all the current events that, you know, I'd kind of lost touch with. I'm kind of a current event junkie, so I detoxed from all that and we had just experienced, it was circumstantial but we got to get our soul kind of recalibrated in a good place and we asked ourselves this question, can this only happen if we have this perfectly aligned set of circumstances? What about when we go back into the fray? What about a week after my sabbatical was over and I went to the hospital at four in the morning and I walked into a room where a 44-year-old man died in the middle of his sleep from a hidden heart defect that nobody knew he had, a healthy guy at a landscaping company and a rock climber and an outdoorsman and he's laying on a table, body lifeless and his 16-year-old daughter draped over him and when I walked in the door, tears streaming down her face, she screamed, tell me what to do, tell me what to do. We don't always get to live offline. We don't always get to live detached. That's not the real world. Thank God for the little retreats and respites. But can the peace of God be in that place? Can the peace of God be in that moment? Can the peace of God be with you when there's these unscripted, unexpected moments that we would have loved to have had be, become a different story than what was being written. Jesus said to his disciples when they were overcome with concern about his conversation regarding his leaving them, and he said, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart. John 14, peace I live with, leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. We all know this. We all say it and we all act like we came up with it. <laughs> Fear not. The most common phrase in the Bible. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Every time angels showed up, they had to say that. Don't be afraid. And people say, saw an angel. Were you afraid? Um... I told my wife if an angel ever showed up in our room, I was going to shoot it because every time angels show up, people are getting pregnant. And we were, we were done. So. so that's no angels at our house. Um, so if Jesus gives you peace... Isn't it no surprise that the enemy would want to steal your peace? 
You know, one of the most obvious scriptures in the Bible in Matthew 4, when Jesus had fasted for 40 days in Matthew 4, it says, after 40 days, Jesus was hungry. <laughs> Never would have deduced that. <laughs> so when, but when did the devil show up? In a vulnerable moment. When he was hungry. I'm going to tell you my drug of choice. I'm a comfort eater. Any other comfort eaters? For the last 24 years, I've preached on average three or four times a Sunday for 24 years, and those cycles take their toll in Sunday afternoons at about three in the afternoon, I'm at my lowest. And that's where the devil shows up. Three o'clock on Sunday afternoons. That's where you usually find me with my head buried in a bag of Doritos or something, just like... Uh, you're laying there and the Oreos in the kitchen start calling you. Randy, did you have a hard day? Come here. We had a... Why does he come? He comes when you're vulnerable. You, you, you know the story when Elijah was all upset and depressed and wanted to die and an angel showed up and made a cake and said, eat and take a nap. That's a life verse for me. That's a life verse. Sometimes you just got to eat some cake and take a nap. That's a, that's a, it's like a fussy kid sometimes. Are you hungry? You're cranky? You're tired? It's like supermodels. I think that's why they always look like they want to rip your head off. Because they're hungry. They, they need a cheeseburger. They're... Sometimes you just need a nap. Sometimes you need to eat something. Sometimes you just, it's a physical thing. You just need to, but it's a spiritual thing. The devil wants to steal what Jesus promised to give. And what, what a countercultural way to live today in our, in our country. If we could actually bring something different to people's lives. That we could bring, we're peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they're the sons and daughters of God. We're like our Father when we're making for peace, when we're bringing peace to relationships, when we're bringing peace to the different environments, when we're not always so bent out of shape, ready to snap, ready to blow up, ready to just... I'm not talking about just trying to be a certain personality type. I'm just saying this interior life that he is my peace. That Jesus has settled the enmity, the division, the hostility, the separation that Jesus has made for peace. That, that to be people of peace. That we can be the people of God and the world that brings something different to the world in which we live. And so I just want to finish by saying these three things. That there are... There are certain prerequisites. There are certain things that we've been invited to do in, in response to the invitation to walk in this peace. And the first one is this. Rejoice in the Lord. We, we know this. 
to have a, a peace that passes understanding, to, to walk in the peace of God, to have the God of peace guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's, there's three imperatives, there's three commands, there's three qualifiers that we're given in this to receive the promise. And the first is simply this, because this is one of the drivers, I'll say almost one of the number one reasons for anxiety they discovered is a constant preoccupation with ourself. Rejoice in the Lord. When John was called up in Revelation chapter 4 to see the world's events from heaven's perspective, the first thing he saw was a throne and one sitting upon it. Isaiah 6, in the king, year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted. He saw a throne. The God is centered. He's seated as the center of the universe. He's enthroned above all things. The worshiping, um, magnifying God interrupts this constant preoccupation I have with myself. That it's not about the Randy-centered universe. It's not about what Randy always wants and what Randy always needs, but it's about him. That re rejoice in the Lord. That there's this invitation to do it again and again. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again. Rejoice in the Lord and again. I say rejoice, that we're, the, we're, we're people who've been given options. You can choose. That's the most fundamental of human freedoms is that we can choose. Viktor Frankl, who wrote those books that were so famous that, that he was the Holocaust survivor, and he talked about even when people were treated in the most heinous of ways, in the most undignified of ways, he still marveled at people who still refused to become the evil that was being done to them because they chose how they responded in those moments. They still took their last bite of bread and shared it with somebody else. I still have a choice. You may be suffering with an addiction, but you have a choice. You can come out of hiding. You can raise your hand. You're, you're, you can make a... This is the choice I want you to make. First of all, let's fix our eyes there. Let's Remember in Psalm 73, Asaph, the worship leader, was struggling, trying to make sense of the world around him. His theology said this about God, but his experience was this. And he tried to make it work in his head. And he said, when I tried to understand it, it was so overwhelming to me that I, I nearly quit. And I couldn't tell anyone, couldn't betray them. Then he says this in Psalm 73, it was until I went back into the sanctuary of God, then I understood. We're people who are more than just thinking people. We are thinking people. But we're not just thinking creatures. We think if we could just get more information. But we are not transformed by what we know for the most part. We're transformed mostly by our longings and our desires. I know it's healthier to eat from farm to table. I know that. I want panda. Uh, I, I know a lot of things that doesn't necessarily change anything for me, but what drives me one thing have I desired, and that will I seek after. What I desire, I seek after. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's God, you're the longing of my heart. The, the change that happens mostly in our lives 
isn't by just hearing a sermon or reading a book or being in a small group. All those things are important. The, the biggest changes of my life have happened in worship, in his presence, beholding him, becoming like him as I see him as he is, being changed with ever-increasing glory into his likeness. The, 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 the moment where I experience the greatest transformation is when I see him high and lifted up. The glory of God. Rejoice in the Lord. Take your eyes off of yourself. It's the strategy, Eugene Peterson says, by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves because praise shifts the focus. It puts the focus where it should be. The second thing he says, and I want you to pray with thanksgiving. In every situation with prayer and thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Praise shifts the focus. Prayer shifts the burden. So now as I come to pray, I'm, I'm not just praying, but I'm praying in a way that relieves anxiety. That's the focus here. That's, that's the gist of this passage of scripture. It's almost like prayer becomes emotional management. How do I process these emotions so I'm not controlled by them, nor do I minimize them? But where does that anger get transformed into love? Where are these things um, addressed in my heart? Because anxiety, they tell us, is a form of emotional pain. There's something unresolved. There's something that needs to be put into the Lord's hands through prayer. So this is how he says, I want you to pray. He says, in every situation, he's saying, this is good in any circumstance you can think of. What he's saying is, whenever you're about to get anxious, I want you to do this instead. So at school, in your dorm room, at the staff meeting, after the 1115 service, um, after you've just had a healthy conversation, a spirited conversation with your 17-year-old, this is what I want you to do instead. Present your request to God. Now that word is used two other times in the New Testament. It's used when the angels said to the shepherds, there's a baby born in, in Bethlehem, and the shepherd said, let's go see this thing that has been presented to us, that has been made known to us. John 15, Jesus said, what my father has shown me, I have made known to you, I've presented to you. Basically, there's something that wasn't revealed yet that is now being brought out into the open. It's, it's as if Paul's saying, I want you to get beyond just the facts of what's going on, and I want you to get to the headwaters of what's driving that below the surface. I have a 26-year-old son named Joseph. Joseph is a computer programmer, graduated with a degree in computer science. Joseph came out of the, we, we tease him, we say he came out of the womb emotionally constipated. He, <laughs> Even as a little tiny guy, when you'd hug him, he'd go like this. Like, he, he's not the kid that throws his... And he, was, he questioned everything from the day he was born. This is an iPad. Who said? Who said that's an iPad? My middle son, I could say, that's an elephant. And he'd go, okay. Uh, totally different. Totally different kid. I discipled my boys. I made a plan to disciple my boys. I gave my wife a family plan every Christmas as a Christmas gift, how I was going to approach leading our family every year with intentionality. I coached all their sports teams. We were present. We lived a relational, um, effectual theology. Loving God was the heartbeat of our home. And he went off to a Christian university. And after his sophomore year, I could tell something was up and 
I said, what's the matter, Joe? What's going on? And he just started to break down in tears, the kid who's never cries. And he said, Dad, I'm struggling. I want to believe, but I'm really struggling to believe. I baptized him. I got to lay hands on him when he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We met every Tuesday morning his entire life growing up through school years, doing an intentional, systematic approach to building just this love for God's word in him. And he was reading the Bible from cover to cover like he did every year. And starting in the sophomore year in January, he started having questions he didn't have before. He started going online and Googling things like, you know, he's reading these Reddit threads and getting caught in these conversations. And then he's got in his computer science classes, these atheists that are challenging him, not just at a surface level, but like deep things that he's wrestling with. Sometimes our faith is inconvenient. So we choose to set it aside and not believe because we want to live a certain way. He was struggling to live. He was struggling to make it work. We started a journey. I, I, should, I, should get, I should have a doctorate right now in apologetics. I read everything he read. I read Hawkins and Dawkins, and I read everything. And one night, I'm laying on my living room floor, and I'm just weeping, praying. It's the middle of the night. And I'm like, God, I'll, I'm that widow at midnight. I'm going to be your worst nightmare. I will give you no rest. This is not okay that my son will not know you and walk with you. And, and I'm just pounding on heaven's door in the Holy Spirit. Said, what are you really worried about? And I had to, in that moment, bring all my fears to the surface. I'm afraid that I've, I'm a failure. I'm ashamed to be a pastor, and my son is questioning the reality of God. And I'm afraid I'm going to have grandkids that won't know Jesus. And I began to go underneath it all and present those requests to God. And for about five hours, I just prayed. And I heard an old timer once say this, pray till the peace comes. How do you know when the peace comes when you don't worry about it anymore? And something got, I presented that to God and the peace of God came. And my wife came downstairs and it was early in the morning and she saw me laying there and she goes, have you been up all night? And I go, yeah. And she said, God woke me up with this word. And she said, I just woke up and God said, don't argue anymore, not argue. Don't get into these long trying to discussions with Joseph anymore. Just keep loving him. Relationship was still good and everything. She said, Joseph's going to come back to me, not because he lost the argument, but because of a revelation I'm going to give him. So he gave us a word. And we just started ganging up on him, no longer afraid. Every time someone says, how's Joseph doing? Will you pray for him? He's struggling in his day. And no sooner would we say that and somebody would say, you know, my son, can I talk to you, my daughter? And we just started dogpiling him on in prayer. And now here we are five years later and four and a half years later, and we now believe there's a God. <laughs> and we've now recently come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible is that God. Yeah, so we're making great progress. We're seeing the reconstruction of his faith. So, uh, so it's been a long, long journey. What's behind your request? I remember pastoring my, the first church when I was 27 years old, and 
I thought I was going to be so profound talking to people when they came needing counseling. And, you know, people would come in 27, they're just pouring out their story in their heart. And I realized I didn't have anything profound to say. I was like, well, good luck with all that. It was like, you know, it's like, I don't know. But you know what I discovered? It wasn't about saying profound things. It was about profoundly listening that, that lives began to heal and change. Why do, you, why do you pray your heart to God? Because you have a God who profoundly listens to you. There's something of healing that happens when we know we're being heard. And then the last thing I won't go into it is then think about these things. Rejoice in the Lord. Present your request to God with thanksgiving. And then there's the command to think about certain things. Isn't most of what brings anxiety to our hearts hypothetical stuff that never even comes to pass anyway? So I, I, I want you to dwell on, on, on these things. I'm going to ask you if you bow your head with me if you would. I felt really stirred this morning when I woke up to come to this section of scripture. And I just keep imagining what it will be like, what it would have been like to be a disciple afraid and hiding and then having the resurrected Jesus just show up in a room and breathe on us, speak his peace over us. He will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is kept on him because he trusts in him. That God's peace that guards our heart and mind, and I just felt like this would be a word for somebody. I just, you're, you're exhausting yourself mentally, trying, you're turning it over again and again and again in your thoughts, trying to make sense of it, trying to make it work out in your head to the point of exhaustion, and God wants to come and guard your heart and mind. Bring peace of mind to you, to your troubled thoughts, to your anxious thoughts. Where your heart is breaking and fragmenting, he wants to bring wholeness there and shalom to it. And I just feel like Jesus is here saying the same thing he said to his frightened disciples. The peace I give you isn't like the peace the world gives you. You really can't explain it. But it's a confidence that he's the one who's on the throne. It's the confidence that it's his life is in us and he is our peace. He rules with peace. And Jesus, may your authoritative kingly rule in our lives be manifested in peace tonight. Lord, wherever one's heart is struggling, wherever there's just this overriding concern about a person, about a circumstance, about a situation at their church or about their own future, May your peace settle. May it guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus to the praise and the glory of your name. Amen.